You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, we read beginning at verse 42. We'll read down to verse 51. Our Lord said this, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think He will. Who then is the faithful and prudent slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour which he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Go to our God together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your grace to us in our Savior, in your Son, the Lord Jesus. We are people who are forgiven, reconciled, secure, standing before you, accepted completely in the Beloved. We don't deserve this. We haven't earned it. There's nothing of our own to boast in. Even as we've just sung, we boast in Christ. We boast in the cross. And it's because of the perfect and finished work of Jesus, because of your love and mercy and grace toward us, explained only by you, not explained by us, but by you. It's only because of your love that we know these things and we give you praise and thanks that we are your people. Lord, I need your help today as I preach. I pray that you would be at work in my mind, in my heart, in my mouth, helping me to give expression to the things that you've given to us in your word in these verses. We ask that the Holy Spirit would teach us, that He would be at work in our hearts as we listen, that You would grant, Lord, light and life as Your words go forth. In Your very words there is power. They are living words. And we pray that You would deal with our lives in a way that changes us, transforms us. We thank You this has already occurred when You regenerated us. We were born again through the living Word of God. Your Word was present when You brought us repentance and faith in Jesus. And Lord, in the same way, as Your Word goes forth today, would You feed Your sheep? Would You edify Your church? Would You do Your work in our lives? We'll give You praise and thanks for what You do in this hour. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we saw in our verses last week that we have a responsibility 
to remain alert. This responsibility has been imparted to the people of God, to the church of God, that we are to stay awake and be ready for the return of our Savior. Jesus said in verse 42, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Spoken to the people of God. Your Lord, what day is He coming? You don't know. And so you are to stay awake. What this means, verse 44, is that we're to be ready. For this reason, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think He will. So we are called to watchfulness. Now when we come to verse 45, there's a slight difference. Verses 42 through 44, a responsibility is imparted. Verses 45 through 51, now a test is given. Are we doing this? Have we heeded? Are we listening to? Are we obeying this charge that the Lord has given to us? Are we living lives that are awake, that are alert? Verses 45 through 51 test us. They describe what this watchfulness looks like. They describe what this watchfulness consists of. And they also describe the consequences of it. Whether we're alert or not is consequential. And the very way that the consequences are described imparts a very weighty lesson. When you read the consequences, what becomes clear is there's a contrast going on in our verses between believers and unbelievers. I mean, listen to what our Lord says about the one who is not awake. Using an illustration, describing an evil slave, verse 50 says, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. And there, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is not describing the future of a believer. This is describing the future of an unbeliever. And so the lesson that is imparted is this. Regeneration results in readiness. Where you really have the new birth, where you really have eternal life, you have people who are characteristically awake. They are alert. It is true we are called to be alert. It is true that we must choose to be awake. But it's also true to say this, that if you are truly saved, you will be awake. You will be alert. That is not to say that we are always as alert as we should be. That is not to say that we are not at certain seasons of our life more awake than at others. I think we can all look back across the span of our lives since the Lord has saved us and said there have been times I've been more awake to the return of my Savior than at other times. But what is true to say is that everyone who is truly regenerate will characteristically, this is what characterizes us, we are a people looking for the return of Jesus. To say it another way, unregenerate people are the people who don't really believe that Jesus is coming. Unregenerate people are the people who don't really believe that Jesus is coming again. Not in their hearts. They may believe it in their minds. They may have intellectually affirmed that. They may even say so with their lips. I believe that Jesus is coming. But then look at their lives. 
Look at how they live. And what becomes apparent is that they don't really believe that Jesus is coming again. If they did, if they believed they would see Him one day, they would not live as they do. To say it another way, unregenerate people don't really believe in the destiny of all things as the Word of God has revealed it. The Bible has not just told us about the beginning of all things. The Bible tells us about the end of all things. Believing people believe God when He tells us about the end. We live our lives in view of the end. Unregenerate people don't really believe what the Bible teaches about the end of all things. Therefore, they live as though this world will go on forever. So this morning, as we look at verses 45 through 51, this is the question we're going to grapple with. Are you really awake? Called to be awake in the previous verses, now tested by our verses this morning as Jesus describes what it looks like if you are awake. Are we really awake? We'll examine these verses under two headings, two main headings. We're going to see watchfulness expressed in a question, and then we're going to see watchfulness expressed by a contrast. So our Lord asks a question, uses an illustration, asks a question, and in that way He describes what this watchful life consists of, looks like. Then He is going to give us a contrast that does the very same thing. It shows us what watchfulness really looks like. Are we awake? So point number one, verse 45, watchfulness expressed in a question. Verse 45, who then is the faithful and prudent slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Jesus teaching a lesson by means of an illustration. He asks this question, what kind of a slave would a master put in charge of his household while he's away. What kind of a slave would be in charge of precious things, important things, on behalf of a master who is away? What kind of a slave does a master entrust with a responsibility not just to take care of practical things, but to take care of people? Notice the kind of slave the Lord envisions in verse 45 is in charge of a household which includes giving food at the proper time. So you're taking care of, of the master's household, his family, your fellow servants, your fellow slaves. The very question supplies the answer. Because notice how the Lord describes the slave. Verse 45, who then is the faithful and prudent slave whom his master put in charge? A master would only put such a person in charge, if that master believes this is a faithful slave and this is a wise slave, a prudent slave. You don't take an unfaithful man and put him in charge of your household. You don't take a foolish man and put him in charge of your household. So the very question supplies the answer. You put faithful men into these positions of responsibility. You put wise men in these positions of responsibility. So what does it mean to live a life that's alert, that's awake for the coming of Jesus? It means you're living a life that's faithful. It means you're living a life that's, that's wise. 
Are you awake? Are you living a faithful life until Jesus comes? Are you living in a wise manner until your master returns? This is what it means to be awake. Now, we can describe this with this question. We can describe this in a couple of ways. If you're living a life that is alert, that's awake until Jesus comes, this means you are awake to your identity. Are we living our lives right now, I mean, tuned in to what our real identity is? The very illustration is instructive. We are slaves. We are servants of a master. We are slaves of the most perfect master. We are slaves of the Most High God. We have been purchased out of the slave market of sin. We've been brought into the household of the Savior, of the King of Kings, of the Lord of Lords. And while it is true that this purchase, this redemption on the part of God has included such grace and mercy that we are now God's very children by adoption and by new birth. While that's true, that we're the children of God, and that's amazing, we still need to recognize that while we are children of God, we are still the slaves of God. We are the servants of God. And that designation all by itself is too good for us. I mean, it's unimaginable that we are the children of God, but just the fact that now I'm a servant of God, a slave of this perfect master, that is too good for me. That should be enough for me, that I should be viewed in such terms. When the Apostle Paul described how he desired for himself and his fellow servants to be viewed in terms of the ministry of the Word of God, this is the very kind of terminology that he used. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, he writes this, This is how one should regard us. This is how I want you to see us, he says. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, slaves of Christ. And he actually uses a strong word there for servants. Spoke of an under rower, a galley slave, the kind of slave that would row a boat. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We live in a world full of pride. We live in a world full of humanity that always thinks it deserves better than it has. One of the things that God granted to us when He saved us is a right view of ourselves, which should produce in us humble hearts. We are those who have acknowledged and confessed that we are sinners, deserving of the wrath of God. But God has been gracious to us, merciful to us, loving toward us, given us His Son who died in our stead and paid for all of our sins, who gifted us His very righteousness so that we stand before God accepted. Who are we to deserve such mercy? And so we rejoice to be the servants of God, the slaves of God. Anything that He assigns to us is too good for us. Anything that He would allow us to do for us in His name is, is a high, high privilege. If you're awake... Your view of yourself matches the Scriptures. If you're awake, you're living your life with a right view of yourself. You are a servant of the living God. What that means is you are a steward. 
You heard that in Paul's description. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians 4, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ. As a result, what does he say? Stewards and stewards of the mysteries of God. God put His Word into our hands. We now have the privilege to preach the Word of God. That means that I am a steward of divine mysteries. I'm a steward of divine truth, divinely imparted truth. Now, what is a steward supposed to be? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.2, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. No coincidence is it that as Jesus describes His people as slaves in this illustration, and He talks about how to live a life that's awake to His return, He describes the slave as faithful. Who then is the faithful and prudent slave whom His master put in charge of His household? This is our calling. This is our charge to live our lives in view of the return of Jesus. And that means we see ourselves rightly. We're slaves of the Most High God. And as a slave, I have a stewardship that's been imparted to me, responsibilities assigned to me by my God that I'm to take care of until He returns. And what I'm aiming at until He returns is to be found faithful with that stewardship. What is a stewardship? It's a trust. It's an assignment. It is an opportunity for loyalty. It is an opportunity for faithfulness. I'm a firstborn son, and even in the natural realm, one of the things that I rejoiced in as the oldest in my family was the opportunity to prove myself loyal to my father and faithful to what he expected of me. And then when the Lord saved me, I saw that in that common grace, God had actually taught me something that's valuable even in the spiritual realm. That is, God is my spiritual father, and I want to be found loyal to what he has given me to do, and I want to be found faithful to what he has entrusted to me. Do you see yourself this way? Do you see yourself as someone who has been given assignments by God, and you want to be found loyal and faithful to the assignments that he's given to you? In this case, in this illustration, the slave's assignment had to do with people, put them in charge of his household to give them their food, these people their food at the proper time. Can I tell you something? Your assignments until Jesus comes have to do with people. All of us have been gifted. All of us have been gifted for ministry. Every saved person hearing me in this room, the Lord gave you his spirit when he saved you and he gave you a spiritual gift when he saved you. Those gifts can be divided generally into two categories. You have speaking gifts and you have serving gifts. The people who've been given speaking gifts, they still serve. And the people who've been given serving gifts, they still speak. But in terms of our giftedness, where we most help the body of Christ, some are gifted in the realm of speaking, some are gifted in the realm of service. But in both instances, the gifts have not been given for self-edification. The gifts have been distributed to be spent on the people of God, spent on others. So the Lord saved you to serve. And no matter what your spiritual gift is, your service is on behalf of God's people. You serve your master by serving his household. And you want to be found faithful with the use of those gifts. The idea that Jesus saved me just to live for myself now from here until I meet him, that Jesus saved me 
just to sit at home and basically do nothing until I meet with Jesus face to face is a complete fabrication. It's a lie based upon what Scripture has revealed. You have been saved to serve the church. And that's an assignment that you're to take seriously and to be awake to. Awake to your identity. You're a slave. Awake to your responsibility. You're a steward. God has given you assignments, and those assignments have to do with people. And the standard for your service is faithfulness. Let that sink in. The standard is faithfulness. The standard is not that that I am inventive, creative. The standard is submissive in nature. God has given me assignments, and in His Word, He has not only spelled out what those assignments are, but He has also told me in His Word how to fulfill my responsibilities. A faithful slave is not someone who thinks he or she has to sort of make it up as they go along. Let me come up with what I'm going to do for God until I meet with Jesus again. I met with Him in salvation. One day I'll meet with Him face to face. So until I meet my Savior, let me sort of make it up as I go along. No. The Lord saved you, and now in His Word, He tells us how to serve Him. So the faithful slaves are those who look to the Word of God with a submissive heart. Lord, I want to do Your will that's been revealed in Your Word in the manner that has been revealed in Your Word. I want to be submissive to what would please You. Faithfulness is that. Faithfulness is obedience. But it also involves judgments, doesn't it? Because this slave is described in verse 45, not just as faithful, but prudent. Your master gives you assignments. They're spelled out. I'm going away. Here's what you're to do for my household while I'm away. You have assignments spelled out, but it is inevitable in whatever responsibility we're ever given that sooner or later issues will arise that require wisdom, require judgment. And a faithful slave is not one who is seeking to do his own will, but knowing the character of his master, knowing what he knows of the will of his master, then when those judgment issues arise, he makes decisions in keeping with the character and the revealed will of his master. He's not seeking to do his own will, even in matters of judgment. He is seeking to do his master's will. This is the person you'll entrust your household to, someone who can be trusted to do what he's told, and someone when he doesn't know what to do without instructions will make decisions based upon what he knows about me, if I'm the master. He'll make decisions based upon what he knows about me, my will, what would please me. This is the person I'm going to entrust my precious things to. Someone who can be trusted to be faithful and prudent. Obedient choices, wise judgments. And something revealed in the entire passage is that that kind of wisdom means you're looking to the end. The wise life is the forward-looking life. The wise life has contemplated the day when the Master returns. I want to make my decisions that require prudence, judgment, in light of the Master's return so that when He returns, I'm found faithful and prudent. Interesting that in Psalm 90, the psalm that 
Butch read earlier. This is what it means to present a heart of wisdom to God. It means that I've numbered my days. I know that my time here is temporary, 70 years on average, if by reason of strength, 80 years. But then I'm going to meet with my Creator, and I'm going to meet with an everlasting future so that if I'm living a wise life, I'm living life in view of the end. I'm living my life beyond this temporary age. I'm numbering my days. And so it is with our Lord's illustration. This wise and faithful slave is going to do what his master has told him to do until the time that his master returns. So this is watchfulness. We're commanded to be watchful. Now Jesus unveils what it looks like to be watchful and what it looks like is faithfulness and wisdom. Are you trustworthy in that kind of way? God has given you assignments that are revealed in Scripture. He has gifted you for what you're meant to do. Are you being faithful and wise with that stewardship? Second, not only is watchfulness here expressed by a question, it's also expressed by a contrast. Look at verse 46. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the question our Lord described a faithful slave, now he contrasts such a slave with an unfaithful one. Learn about watchfulness by considering what kind of slave you would entrust such responsibilities to, but then also learn about watchfulness by thinking about the difference between a trustworthy slave and an untrustworthy slave. There's a slave that's blessed, he says. Blessed is that slave. We're familiar with that word, blessed, makarios. Spiritually prosperous, spiritually healthy, well, joyful. Can I tell you something? Listen, faithfulness is its own reward. To live an obedient life is to live a blessed life. Blessing is found in obedience. Blessing is found in faithfulness. I know with certainty that every believer in this room would agree with me and say the only times we have ever regretted in our lives are the times when we have not obeyed God. Obedience is the place where our joy abides. Obedience is the place where blessing is clear to see. So this faithful servant is going to discover that his faithful standard has produced a positive return. What is this blessed slave characterized by? He fulfills his charge until the master comes home. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing, that is living faithfully and prudently, finds him so doing when he comes. Fulfilled his charge until the master returns. That is, he didn't just begin well. 
He finished. Not someone who begins well, looks like they're faithful with the things they've been entrusted with, but then lose their way. No, this is one who perseveres in faithfulness. Do not be weary in doing well, for in due season you will reap if you don't faint. This is what the Bible says to us. Keep on being faithful. Keep on being obedient. Persevere in being that faithful, blessed slave. Fulfills his charge until the master comes. Or to say it another way, he proves his loyalty until the master comes. Are you characterized by holy loyalty? Not an unholy kind of loyalty, but a holy loyalty. Loyalty to the right things. Loyalty to the right person. His loyalty is rewarded, verse 47, with increased responsibility. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. He comes and finds this faithful slave. What does he do? He gives him more to manage because his loyalty is proven. Leon Morris commented, he said, the solemn, truly I tell you, verse 47, truly I say to you, that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Moore says, the solemn truly I tell you emphasizes that the following words are significant. The master will reward the slave by setting him in the most responsible position in the estate. He will be appointed over all his goods. The reward for faithful service is the opportunity of serving in a higher and more responsible place, not ease and rest forevermore. Close quote. What is your faithfulness fueled by? One aspect of the fuel that keeps us faithful is a belief in our future. Do you believe God when He promises you reward for faithfulness? The Bible describes hearing, well done, faithful servant. I mean, do you really believe that day is coming so that your faithfulness now is fueled by the promise of your master that he rewards such service. Interesting too, isn't it, that the illustration Jesus chooses has to do with a slave managing fellow slaves. I think the fact that Jesus is saying this to his disciples who will be in charge of churches is sobering. What I'm saying this morning applies to all of us but to anyone who's given a leadership responsibility in the church, I think it especially addresses us in a very sobering way. John Calvin had this to say, Let all who are called to an honorable office learn from this, that they are so much the more strongly bound not only to bestow their labor faithfully, but to strive with their utmost zeal and industry to discharge their duty. For while it is enough for ordinary servants to go through their daily toil, stewards whose office embraces the care of the whole family ought to go much farther. Otherwise, Christ charges them with ingratitude because while they have been chosen before others, they do not answer to their honor. For why does our Lord prefer them to the rest but in order that they may excel all by extraordinary fidelity and wisdom? What Calvin is saying is if you've been blessed to now be given a leadership responsibility in the church, how much more faithful should you prove to be? How much more prudent should you strive to be? What a privilege the Lord has given you. What are you doing with that privilege? 
Calvin goes on to say, true, indeed, all are enjoined, applies to all of us, without exception, to be sober and to give earnest attention, but drowsiness would be peculiarly disgraceful and inexcusable in pastors. He next holds out even the hope of a reward to encourage them to diligence. Spiritual laziness is shameful for all of us, but it's especially shameful for pastors. And so we strive in our work to be loyal, to be faithful. This is the blessed slave. Blessed in the realm of his own obedience. Blessed in the realm of his own faithfulness. Faithfulness is its own reward. Believing not only that his master is returning, but that he has reward with him when he comes. This one remains faithful. But now notice the contrast, verse 48. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves, and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour which he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I want you to see in verse 48, when Jesus wants to describe an evil slave. He doesn't begin with behavior. He begins with belief. I want you to see that such a belief is not morally neutral. Someone who lives an unwatchful life has embraced an idea that is evil. In other words, the evil of this man's behavior is explained by the evil of this man's belief system. Jesus takes us to the heart of an evil slave. If that evil slave says in his heart, this is your belief system. My master is not coming for a long time. A forgetful life, an earthbound life, is a life absent the proper faith. You're living as though Jesus is never returning because you lack the faith that He's really returning. You don't really believe He's returning. You may believe it formally. You may believe it on a doctrinal statement. You may say it with your lips. But your life reveals you don't really believe He's returning. And as I said earlier, we go on to see, this is an unbeliever professing to be a believer. You're in the household. You've been entrusted with certain responsibilities in this illustration. But you prove to be evil. And by the way, what does this evil slaves, what do his words reveal? My master's not coming for a long time, therefore I'm going to live in a different way. What does that reveal? He's not motivated by love for the master. Because love for the master would mean that his life would be the same whether the master comes soon or whether the master comes in a long time. It doesn't matter. If you love the master, you want to do the will of the master no matter when he shows up. But this slave isn't motivated by love. This servant is not motivated by loyalty. Loyalty remains the same. If he returns on day one, I want to be found loyal. If he returns on day 300, I want to be found loyal. If your standard changes based upon the time of his return, we know you're not motivated by love or loyalty. 
What are you motivated by then? Fear. That's all. Accountability. And so this servant eventually convinces himself he really has no accountability. He's not coming for a long time. So that he eventually turns to evil behaviors that reveal what was in his heart all along. Again, Calvin was very good on this point. He says, by these words, Christ briefly points out the source of that carelessness which creeps upon wicked servants. It is because they trust to a longer delay and thus of their own accord involve themselves in darkness. They imagine that the day when they must render an account will never come. And under the pretext of Christ's absence, they promise themselves that they will remain unpunished for it is impossible, but that the expectation of Him, when it does occur to our minds, shall shake off sleep, and still more, that it shall restrain us from being carried away by wicked sensuality. No excitement of exhortation, therefore, can be more powerful or more efficacious than to represent to us that rigid tribunal which no man will be able to escape, that each of us may be careful to discharge his duty earnestly and keep himself strictly and modestly within his own limits. Let us constantly make our minds familiar with the thought of that last and sudden coming of the Lord, the neglect of which leads the reprobate to indulge in wickedness. Anyone who loves Jesus, anyone who wants to be loyal to Jesus and believes that Jesus is coming cannot give themselves over characteristically to a life of sensuality. And so when you meet with someone who is engaging in wicked behaviors, but they profess to know Jesus and they profess that they know He's coming, you're actually meeting with someone who's operating in the wrong belief system. They don't really believe He's coming. How does such an evil slave behave? Verse 49, he mistreats people. Notice he begins to beat his fellow slaves. And he indulges himself. The verse goes on to say, and eat and drink with drunkards. He abuses others. Notice this represents a change in his behavior. Begins to beat his fellow slaves. I mean, this isn't how he began. Why did the master entrust him with these responsibilities? Because he appeared to be faithful and prudent. But after a time passes and he says, the master's not coming anytime soon. Now what comes out was what was in his heart all along. This is a selfish person. This is a proud person, therefore this is an abusive person. And so what begins to emerge is the mistreatment of other people, fellow slaves. One of the ways that I know you're looking for the return of Christ is you're faithful and wise in your relationships. The way you treat other people reflects your expectation that Jesus is coming. You want to be found loyal and faithful with respect to His household. You want to be found faithful and loyal with respect to the people that He's put in your life. You and I are changing all the time, either based upon our relationship with Jesus or based upon friendship with the world. Which way are you changing? It's a sad thing. It's a powerful thing sometimes to watch a person's life, a professing Christian, someone who says they know Jesus, someone who says they believe He's coming again, to watch their life sort of spiral downwardly as they're affected more and more by this world around them instead of by the truth of God's Word because 
Their heart is actually being unveiled, but if it can be unveiled, what you would discover is they don't really believe the Master is coming anytime soon. So if you took the coming of the Master out of the way, if He wasn't coming at all, this is how they would live. This is how they would really live. This is who they really are. They abuse other people, but they also indulge themselves. This person is described as eating and drinking with drunkards. Indulges himself by keeping company with the people who share his character. Finds company with people who would never be approved by his master. Keeps company with people who would never be entrusted with precious responsibilities. Finds company with people who live for themselves and live for the passing pleasures of sin. And this is what is in his heart to do. So this is what he begins to give himself to. A lifestyle of self-indulgence, a lifestyle where he is at the center of his life and he lives to please himself. He serves his belly, as the Bible puts it. What does it mean to be watchful? Your sense of identity is right. I'm a slave of the Most High God, the Most Perfect Master. You're awake to your identity. You're awake to your stewardship. And you're someone who wants to be found faithful and wise until the Master returns. You're loyal towards your master because you love your master. But in contrast, you see what, what it means to live a careless life, an unwatchful life. You're someone who may have begun well, but now you're swerving out of the way. And what is in your heart begins to emerge, and what emerges is a self-centered life that results in the abuse of others and the indulgence of your flesh's desires. What is the future of such a person? the careless person, the unwatchful person, the, the person who's not awake to the return of the master. What is their future? Verse 50, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour which he does not know. And will cut him in pieces. And assign him a place with the hypocrites. And that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Several things we can say about his judgment. His future is judgment. Several things we can say about that judgment. First of all, it's a judgment that he didn't believe in. He's going to meet with a judgment that he didn't really believe in. The master will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour which he does not know. There you were going on with your life as though that day of judgment would never arrive, but it has now arrived. What you never imagined to be real is real. It's a judgment he doesn't believe in. If it were to ever appear, he thought it would be long delayed, but now it has come and he's meeting with it. It's a judgment in truth. It's a judgment in truth. He had presented himself one way, but now it becomes clear he is actually someone else. Which is why, verse 51, his place will be with the hypocrites. His place will be with those who have worn a mask, who've appeared to be one thing, when in reality they were another thing. When the accountability of the master seemed real to him, he lived a certain way. But as soon as that was taken away, as though the master would never come, now what comes out is who he really is. And that judgment one day will be in keeping with the truth of who he really is. I say this loving you, desiring the salvation of everyone who hears my voice. One day, dear one, it will not matter to you in the least what people thought of you. 
The only thing that will matter to you is what God knows to be true of you. So anyone hearing me that you're not real, I mean, you're not truly a believer, you're not regenerate, forget how many people think you're saved and come to Jesus in true repentance and a broken heart and ask the Lord Jesus to save you for real. Otherwise, one day you'll find your place among the hypocrites. A judgment he didn't believe in, a judgment in keeping with the truth, a judgment that is severe. It's severe. He will be cut in two, is the thought. He'll be executed, reminded again that sin is not a small thing with God. Either your sins have been atoned for, answered for at the cross of Christ. Either Jesus died for your sins or you're going to suffer for them yourself. And it is a severe judgment that such an evil slave is going to meet with. All sinners will be found to be sinners. All sinners will receive the wrath of God. But what an awful eternity awaits men who had the Word of God in their mouths and purported to be shepherds. But one day it becomes plain they were just hypocrites. What a severe judgment awaits every false shepherd. Our sin is worthy. It's worthy of the most awful punishments to be cut in pieces. And yet, the last thing we note about this judgment is it's endless. It's endless. How are you cut in pieces and then assigned a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? We're reminded again, aren't we, that the end of the body is not the end of our existence. The end of this body, this mortal body, is not the end of our existence. Everyone is going to experience a resurrection one day. Some will be raised to life. Some will be raised to everlasting death. So that following the execution, the person is still conscious. And they're assigned a place with hypocrites where there is this endless suffering, this endless conscious remorse, regret, and pain. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in verses 42 through 44, Jesus says, Stay awake. Be ready. I'm coming. Verses 45 through 51, he says, by the way, my people will be ready. They are awake. Not perfectly, as I said earlier, not at all times, but these kinds of exhortations are effective with saved people. They wake us up again. And he's saying in verses 45 through 51, not only will we be awake, he says, now test yourself. Are you awake? Because if you're awake, you understand your identity. You're a slave of the master. You've been given responsibilities. You have a stewardship. And the standard for your service until he comes is faithfulness. It is obedience, but it's also wisdom. So that you're living your life, numbering your days, knowing his character, knowing what pleases him, even in those matters where judgment issues arise. You're not self-willed. You're making your decisions based on what you know He would want. And you're different than an empty professor. Because an empty professor doesn't really believe He's coming. 
And no matter how they started, watch how they finish. Because the longer the delay, the more their absence of faith is on display and their evil beliefs begin to come out in evil behaviors. And the evil behaviors show up in the realm of relationships as they abuse other people, and they show up in the realm of fleshly indulgences as they live for the passing pleasures of sin. And they keep company with those with whom they really have the most in common, people who also don't believe that the Master is coming. The question is, which kind of slave are you? Which kind of servant are you? You've not just been charged with the responsibility to stay awake. You've been called here to examine yourself and ask, are we awake? Are we awake? And I'm so thankful that being awake and being alert isn't a call to be inventive, to be radical by some self-styled standard. To be awake is to be faithful. To be awake is to be wise. To be awake is to be submissive. To be awake is to be obedient. It is to simply take the Word of God at face value and to do what it says in the power of the Spirit out of love for Jesus and loyalty to Him day after day after day after day after day after day until you see Him face to face. That's what it means to be awake. And everyone who wants to be found awake, would you say amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for Your calls to us that keep us awake. The charges that our Savior gave us that keep us alert. Forgive us, Lord, because we see those times when we are not as alert as we should be. We see those times in our lives when we are spiritually slothful and sinful, disobedient. But we're so grateful that we have Your Spirit and we have the truth and You don't leave us in that condition. You stir us up to love and to good deeds. You remind us of our future. You remind us that our Master is coming so that Your Word proves effective in our hearts. We're so grateful, Lord, that when our hearts would condemn us, when our enemy would condemn us, You are greater than our hearts and Your gospel promises are true and we are loved by You and have been forgiven by You and are received by You, but Lord, You have saved us to live for You until we meet with our Savior face to face. So Lord, would You strengthen us to that end? Would this be a church that is awake to our identity and to our responsibilities, to our stewardship? And Lord, may people regard us, even as the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, may people regard us as servants of God, stewards of the mysteries of God, and may we be found, as is true with all stewards, may we be found faithful. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.